Hello and welcome to the Soccer Coach Weekly podcast with me, Steph Fairbairn. Thank you for joining us as we get insights and ideas from coaches working across the game to help you develop into the coach you want to be. This episode, I'm joined by Matt Fisher, manager of Crew Alexandra Women, a club based in Cheshire, Northwest England. Matt also works with the under-18 boys on the education programme and will lead on the newly formed Emerging Talent Centre. Matt's journey in coaching started at the age of 16. He then took some time out to be a postman before getting back into it and is now full-time working in the game. I caught up with Matt to talk about what he's doing with the women's team, the style he's developed there and what working with his first female team has taught him as a coach. Matt. Welcome to the Soccer Coach Weekly Podcast. Do you want to start by telling us a bit about you and your coaching journey and some of your current coaching roles? Yeah, so I'm currently working full-time within Crew Alexandra in the community. Um, It's been quite a long journey from sort of 16, 17 years of age. I started coaching and did the old level one and level two and the junior team managers course then Um, and coached a wide variety of players, uh, mentored coaches, supported them through the coaching journey themselves. Um, but mainly now I work with the scholars at Crew Alexandra, so our under-18s on the education programme and the women's first team. And we've just set up our new ETC, which is the Emerging Talent Centre for young female footballers. So I'll be leading that as well. So what was it then that initially got you into, into coaching at 16? It was... Um, my PE teacher, really, I, I was always a keen footballer uh, and knew I wasn't going to be good enough to be a professional footballer. Uh, and my PE teacher sent me on work experience to Crew Alexandra in the community. And the community programme manager at the time offered me an apprenticeship, a coaching apprenticeship when I left school. Um, I must have done enough to impress or made a good cup of coffee on my work experience. And it, it stemmed from there, really, but I've not been in football that whole time. I was an apprentice for a couple of years and did me, me initial coaching badges and then ended up leaving football and going to be a postman. Um, and it was only by chance, really, that I got back into it that um, a colleague of mine had a, a grassroots team. My son played for a grassroots team and her husband was the coach. And the boys had kind of got to an age where they weren't really listening to the coach because it was just the young lad's dad now and he'd spent a lot of time with them. So she wondered if I'd get back involved and it, I took a bit of persuasion, but quite quickly I went in there and just really enjoyed it. And some of the boys ended up going and playing professionally at different academies and stuff. And that kind of got me, gave me the bug to try and get back into it a bit more. And I suppose from that first point of coaching when you were 16 to coaching now, what changes have you seen, I suppose, in, in the profession and, and in football in general? A lot more people wanting to do it, looking to get involved, um, which is great in some aspects because the quality of coaching has, has gone through the roof. The um, type of learning material we've got. So at the time, I remember when I first started coaching, uh, my mentor at the time, this was like year 2000, so we're talking 22 years ago, uh, gave me some quite old literature, just books that were, were quite dated, Um and took some some really figuring it out to get your head around some of the ideas. Whereas now there's just so much learning material out there, even down to just watching the football on the telly. Some of the some of the information you get from 
the uh, the pundits or the coaches that they have on Monday night football or you know Sunday football, the, the, the Super Sunday football uh, YouTube channels. The learning, the learning, the material out there is just so vast that it helps a lot. And I know you're coaching full time, and I think we've got a lot of listeners that that's their aspiration. Um, I suppose what is it? What has it taken to get there? What sacrifices have you have you had to make to to get your coaching career to that point? Um, a lot of voluntary hours is is the key one, and making good decisions. Don't just take an opportunity because it's slightly better than the one you've got now. Um, I see a lot of coaches. I work with a lot of coaches that might be moving around a lot, looking for the next best thing, and then you kind of can get a bit of reputation. Um, I, I know when I was at the post office, a mentor of mine worked for the FA before I worked for for the, for the Cheshire FA, and he would regularly call me and say, "There's an event at St George's Park. What are you doing?" And I worked nights at the time at the post office, and I'd just sacrifice sleep and go to be able to network and learn things. Sometimes I'd work, for example, a Wednesday night, get home at 6am, have a bit of breakfast, take the kids' school, drive to Burton, do all day at St George's Park voluntarily, come home, have a bite to eat, and then back out for Thursday night shift, so it's almost 48 hours before you sleep. And that sounds crazy, but, you know, the lads at work would say to me at the time, like, aren't you tired? And say, oh, I'm absolutely shattered, but I've had the best day. Um, and, and, and now we see, you know, coaches sometimes won't travel more than 15 or 20 minutes because it's not paid. It's a voluntary role and I won't travel 15, 20 minutes. And I've traveled over an hour for many voluntary uh, roles. So don't, don't think you're above and beyond um, voluntary work. I just try and work with the best players in the best facility and the best coaches that you can. And what I suppose what you've just said there is, is intense. And, and also you referenced before um, all the kind of learning materials that are available, all the, games we can watch like we are surrounded by football now and if you're if you're a coach I think it's super easy to get to get completely lost in that like do you do you find that and also do you find it's important then to be able to step away and relax and and have a break from that sometimes I do now I didn't then so uh, you know as I say about when when I was working at Royal where I know I had a full full-time job on nights and I was probably doing 50 hours a week at work including and then 10 hours travel so 60 hours and then probably another 15 to 20 hours voluntary work a week. You know, I miss things with my kids and um, my wife, and she was very supportive. I think it's only sort of as I've got a bit older and thought there's more important things, uh, you have to step away. So sometimes you have to let this role go or that role go to be able to be the best you can at, at lesser ro- you know, at, at less roles, if that makes sense, and try and sort of say that, you know, if, if it's Saturday or if it's Sunday, that is that is family day where we do something. So let's talk then a bit about um, your role at Crew. I suppose, tell us a bit about your philosophy there and, and what you're building at Crew. So with the women, it started out, um, the the club, the, the women's section wasn't really part of the club. It was a standalone club that used the name Crew Alexandra and had a little bit of involvement. Um, and I was just kind of, it was the right opportunity at the right time. I had no history in um, women's football. I've worked in boys men's academy football, non-league football, disabled football, mentoring. But it was just something that came along at the right time. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in that. And it was just a bit of luck, really, that I kind of went in at the time where the club were, were looking at getting more involved with the women's section. The women's section was craving that. There was a bit of a reform. I thought the old committee was reshaped and and it, it come under the club's um, banner. And then that created other opportunities for me to then work for Crow Alexandra. 
So there was a little bit of luck in there. But our aim was really quite quickly to just create, you know, there's a lot said about equal opportunities or equal pay or whatever you want to say about the women's game. But I think there was a real desire early on from all the coaching staff and the players at Crew Women that equal opportunities was was a big thing. You know, if an under nine boys team is, is getting this, whether it be a team bus, whether it be a physiotherapy, then the girls should be getting the same. We're not talking about pay here. We're talking about treatment, basic things that allow you to be the best you can be. So that's key. We, we changed from one day a week to two days a week training, which is a massive commitment. We've got single mums that are at university going, you know, going to, to, to re-educate themselves. We've got NHS staff, we've got police officers. So that commitment's been key. We've had to let players go that were a little bit more, their football journey was a little bit less uh, intense. They wanted something where they could turn up, train and have a game and a kick about. Uh, and we were going in a direction that didn't really support that. So we found them the correct teams and that's helped us recruit the, the right type of player. So, um, yeah, it's that, that's that's what we're trying to build is the, the women's section mirrors the, the boys' section at Crew, and a lot of people know about Crew Alex as a men's team. Um, we don't have lots of money to throw around. We have to produce our own talent. And, we, you know, the syllabus that the women work from is exactly the same syllabus that the academy boys use, I use with our under-18 scholars. Um to try and produce a crew Alex football, whether it be a boy or a girl. So I'm going to come back to a bit more of, of what you're doing at crew, but just, you said, obviously it was your first time, I guess, coaching women. What for you as a coach have been the key differences between coaching a male team and a, and a female team? Um, it's it, I've had to adapt. Uh, I felt like um, from a psychological point of view, the girls require more information and kind of, worry if they're not doing something correct or if there's a change in the team I felt like I've had to get used to explaining and reassuring players a bit more than I have done in the men's game and that's not an issue that's just something I've had to adapt for so girls aren't thinking they've done something wrong when they, they haven't um, the real pleasing thing is is the will to learn you know when you go into certain environments in the men's game there can't be big egos and um, sometimes they don't want to learn sometimes they think they can know it all um, technology can sometimes be scoffed at or laughed at, whether it be a VO camera or GPS vests. Whereas in the female game, a lot of the time they haven't really benefited from that. They haven't really received that. So any kind of technology or information you give them, they lap it up. Um, and as a coach, that's really what you want. You want to work with players that want to learn. It aids you, it aids the team. So, I mean, never say never, but I, I can't see me leaving the female game now. I've had such a blast the last three and a half years. We've had ups and downs. But from a development point of view, I see a lot more development. And I know you followed the, the Euros um, over the summer and, and I read an interview that you did where you said recruitment um, for you was, was more difficult this summer because of cost of travel, work commitments, cost of living and stuff. So what do you think we need to be doing to support women in the game and make sure that the legacy they've left from the Euros is, is actually carried out? I think... Um, finances are key aren't they and like I've said I said earlier in, in, in the interview that um, there's been a lot a lot of people have something to say on equal pay and, and I've not met a female footballer that claims that they want or deserve equal pay there is a realism there um, and people take out of context uh, the equal pay thing but I know of men's football teams at the same level tier five of the football pyramid that are paying their players 80, 100 pound a game. I've been involved in them clubs. Um, and they're getting that through sponsorship and spectators. Uh, whereas our girls have to pay us 
Um, so we we benefit from no finance, no finances. Crew Alexander aren't a football club that can afford to say there's a budget for you. Um, so our girls pay us £25 a month. And that's to buy kit, to pay for pitches, for officials, travel, etc. So we've struggled with sponsorship in the past. I think, I don't know whether companies think because we're Crew Alex that we maybe don't deserve it and they'd rather support a more grassroots club. Um I know I've spoke to many people that when they hear that the girls don't get paid, they're like, really? They're surprised by it. In the men's game, there was no real sort of money as such until Sky invested it in the early 90s. And I think it needs someone to invest and just speculate to accumulate. Um, so a small bit of... I know we've been reached out. A few companies have reached out to us after the Euros that have said we've, we've had limited, limited knowledge of football, women's football anyway. And we've just totally been taken over by the, the Euros and looking to sponsor us. If we could get a small amount of money in that made it free for the players to play, that's a massive step for any club. Tell us then a bit more about your um, playing style and I suppose what what your team's brand of football is. Um, I like to... Uh, it's hard to say really because I think you have to be realistic and, and, and know what you've got in terms of personnel in an ideal world and where we're at with crew now. I think early on when I went in, we knew we had to improve our athleticism. I felt like for, for a team to be able to do what I want them to do, they have to be athletic. Um, and that is to win the ball back as early as possible and to get at your opponent and ask questions, whether that be through a sequence of passes, a phase of play or, you know, 1v1s. You know, I always say to our players, if if you're outnumbered 2 or 3v1, then yeah, by all means, recycle possession. Let's try and create an overload somewhere else. But if you want me one, really, you should be getting at that player and asking questions. And um, th- th- there's no, there's no sort of you'll never hear me complain to a player if they lose possession by asking a question of the opponent in a one v one situation. So really, quite intense, both in and out of possession. We don't focus too much on keeping the ball. I don't think we'd be dead excited by the fact we had seventy percent possession. It's more about creating key chances. Sometimes that is through possession. Sometimes you have to do that. I know we played a team on Sunday that sat quite deep. And uh, we were required to move the ball around much more than we would normally to try and draw them out. But then most teams will come at you and then that gives you opportunities to find space in behind and be quite intense and in the face. That 1v1 approach, I suppose, requires confidence. And um, that's something I think I've I've spoken to people working in the women's and girls game and they've said confidence is actually... They usually see, see male players, yes, I've got the ball, take someone on. They have to build women's confidence up a, a little bit more. How do you go about building up confidence and um, saying, you know, it's, it's okay to go 1v1 and give that a try? I don't know the answer, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> it's, um, it's still something I'm learning. You know, the girls are so different. We have, we have a player that plays for us that she really doesn't know how good she is. And um, I say to her every time, get the player and she'll do it regularly in training. And she's well known in the league, you know, players are scared of her. And sometimes I think she could just take a bit of an easy option. And it is purely because she doesn't think, you know, and she said, what, what if I lose possession? And it's like, you're in the final third of the pitch. The risk is really so low and the reward is so high that have you, have you ever heard me tell you off for losing possession in the final third? I'm actually upset when you just palm it off to a centre midfielder because if I was that fullback, the last thing I would want is you running at me. She really is a beast of an athlete. Um, so sometimes it's reassuring the player of what they can do and, and some moments to sort of say, do you remember when you did this against the East? Look, that's exactly what we wanted. It worked that time. 
sometimes it's just um, we've got other players that are a little bit more old school that need that sort of kick up the backside. And we've got players that that kick up the backside would break them. So I'm still learning on that one and I still get it wrong regularly. One of the things um, a lot of coaches are kind of keen to hear about is, is session design. Um, so I suppose over your years of experience, what have you found really works for you in terms of de- designing your, your training sessions? Um, organisation, because I'm not an organised person. Everything's last minute, so I have to be ultra organised to sort of counter that. So organisation's key. Uh, I, I wouldn't, in the early days, I turn up. I could turn up to sessions with it jotted down on the back of an envelope in my car. And I think that that doesn't work. Um, keep it real. So I see a lot of coaches that, and I, I watch videos on YouTube. Uh, I watch videos on different formats that I, that I follow on different, you know, different websites, et cetera. But I still see coaches carbon copying sessions that they might have seen Villarreal do on YouTube. And it's really not appropriate to your under-14s grassroots team. It looks great on YouTube and it is great, but it's not real. But you can take, bits from that how can you adapt it you know so the way I do it and I'm not saying it's the right way it's just the way it works for me is what do I want to improve on so at crew we have a technical night on a Tuesday which follows the syllabus like I say of the uh, the boys so this week it's receiving on the uh, half turn and driving into the final third so that's a technical one that our coaching team will do whether it's me delivering whether it's the assistant or whether it's the first team coach on a Thursday night it'll be a tactical night which will be working on what we're going to do to combat the opposition on Sunday, whether it be a team that struggle and play a bit deeper, whether it's a team that are quite fit, whether it's a team that play wing-backs, etc. So, and, and the only other one I would say is a progression to your session. Um, sometimes you can deliver the same session to the same team three times, and it, one can go swimmingly, one can be okay, and the other one can be a disaster, and sometimes there's no... There's no sort of explanation for it, certainly not at the time. So having that trick card, that joker up your sleeve to be able to adapt the session so it doesn't become a mess, that's something that only I've learned over experience and I'm, again, still learning. And then what about how you take that into match days? I think what does your kind of planning and preparation look like for match days? Um, so the way we do it is that the, the, the one change that we made was when I first come in, the girls weren't told to start at 11 till till half an hour before kickoff. And um, that shocked me a little bit. I feel like the girls would regularly say, if I knew I was playing in this position, Saturday night might be spent doing a bit of research into that position or getting my head around that position. And when I asked why previous coaches had only done the team half an hour before kickoff, it was, well, they were a bit concerned if a girl finds out she's on the bench, would she turn up Sunday? Which I was like, well, we'll do it. Or if a girl doesn't turn up suddenly by finding out she's on the bench, it'll be the last time she plays for me. And it's not something we've ever had an issue with. So the squad will go out on a Friday. That also allows then any girls that aren't in the starting 11 to get over that disappointment. They haven't got a face on them in the changing rooms because naturally when you find out you're not in the starting 11, you will be disappointed. If you've heard it on Friday, hopefully that's out of the system by Sunday. So we're only positive. Um, so in terms of match prep, that's the first thing team's done on a Friday. Any, any questions, that's fine. If there is anyone playing slightly out of position or if I feel like the opponent's best player is a left winger, I might drop a text to the right back on a Saturday and just say, how how do you think we're going to cope with her tomorrow? Just engage a little bit of a conversation, just provoke a few bit of thought. Um, And then on match day, I'm much more relaxed these days. I used to find that I fell into the pit that a lot of coaches do and you're on the sidelines, you're getting so involved. You take 
<clears throat> each loss uh, so personally. I'm not, I'm not so bad anymore. I, I try and treat it like a coaching session. Um, first 10 minutes will rarely say anything as a coaching team. I don't feel like anything anybody can benefit from anything within the first 10 minutes of a game. I think it has to settle. And we've just got a few little things that we do, like at halftime, the players will go in and the coaches will stay outside the dressing room for five minutes. It allows us to all have a little discussion as coaches and make sure we're all singing off the same hymn sheet. Um, look, Matt, you've given us so much on so many topics actually to, to think about. So I just, um, it's a tough question, but if you could give one takeaway for a coach uh, listening to this podcast from this conversation, what, what would you like to say to them? I say this so much, but I know a mentor of mine, the best thing he ever did was say to me, like, don't let your professional standards drop. Be professional in everything you do. Um, don't turn up to a session. I mean, for example, I'm not feeling very well today. Uh, the wife saying, don't, don't go training tonight. You know, let the coaches do it, have a night off. I will be there. It might be that I have a lesser role tonight, but I've got to be there because I expect that from my players, not necessarily to turn up with a poorly, but I expect that commitment so I can be there. Um, but on the flip side of that, I felt like in my early stages, I benefited from some really good mentors, but almost ended up trying to be a carbon copy of them. And as I've got a bit older, I've learned to take the best bits of them, but still be me. Um, that's probably the best bit of advice I can give. Take everything good from the people you, you work with, but don't lose you. That was the voice of Matt Fisher. Thanks to Matt for his time and sharing his experiences. And thanks to you for listening to the Soccer Coach Weekly podcast. For more from us, join us again next week or visit soccercoachweekly.net for practice plans, advice, interviews and much more. I'm Steph Fairburn. See you again soon.